Here at Logansville Church, we come from a variety of different backgrounds, which means that we have a variety of, I guess we could say, pre, uh, theological presuppositions, or maybe we should just say the, the biblical backgrounds of what we believe are probably different for most of us. So for example, the use of alcohol might be considered a sin to you or at least very unwise, whereas for others in this room, it's not an issue whatsoever. The same could be said for tobacco, or dancing, or even card games that might be construed as gambling. When we lived in Xenia, uh, we had some neighbors that were quite close. Literally, we shared a driveway. And we also went to church together, and their kids were the same age as ours, and so we spent a lot of time together. And every Monday night, John hosted Guy's Poker Night. And I started going, especially since it was essentially in my yard. Except we always played darts, and never for money. We just shot darts and drank Pepsi. I think he called it Poker Night because we went to a Baptist church and he knew that it would rile a few of the older folks. And if you come from that kind of background... It doesn't have to be Baptists. You know, most Pentecostals, as well as many other denominations, believe that certain activities are sinful, even though the Bible doesn't explicitly call them sin, like going to the movies or playing Texas Hold'em, whatever that is. And in some cases, the Bible actually commends the activity or even recommends it in certain circumstances. So Timothy was frankly, not told to drink some watered-down, alcohol-free grape juice for his frequent stomach problems. Jesus did not turn the water into the very best Welch's. There are good and right reasons why a person would abstain from drinking alcohol, and I don't want you to get hung up on those points. What we actually need to be very, very careful about here is what the Bible actually says. See, if you come from a background like mine, you probably were told as a, as a warning to stay away from certain things like cigarettes or something like that, that your body was the temple of the Holy Spirit, which it is. And I, but I don't want to speak for you on this point, but I know that I didn't know what that meant. We weren't really told what it means to be the temple of the Holy Spirit or how this doctrine should actually inform our views of the church and our roles, our own roles personally in the church. But for the Apostle Paul, as he writes to the church at Corinth, one of the things that we should be able to see and understand is the fact that Christ's church is the temple of the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer, every Christian. And that this doctrine should actually be fundamental to our notion and understanding of the nature of the church. This is the promise of God throughout the scriptures. Listen to the promise. I think you'll be able to put this together. I'm going to read a few verses first from the books of the law. So Exodus chapter 29, verses 45 and 46 says this, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. 
Leviticus chapter 26, verses 11 to 13. He says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and make you walk erect. Numbers chapter 5, the first few verses. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel that they may put out of the camp anyone who is leprous or has a discharge and anyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell, God says. Again, Numbers chapter 35, verse 34. He says, you shall not dwell in the land in which you live, in the midst in which, of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people Israel. The Lord makes his dwelling place with his people. So that was the law. How about the prophets? 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 11 to 13, when Solomon was, was actually building the temple, when he was constructing God's house, the word of the Lord came to Solomon, quote, this is what God says to Solomon, concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. In Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 26 to 28, the prophet Ezekiel tells us that God says, I will make a covenant of peace with them and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Ezekiel chapter 43 verses 7, 8, and 9 says this, And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of kings shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their whoring, by the dead bodies of their kings at their high places, by setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorposts with only a wall between me and them. They have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed. So I, am, I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell dwell in their midst forever. He's calling for repentance in those verses. Here's just a couple more. Zechariah chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Many nations shall join themselves to the Lord that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. 
Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. And those those last couple of passages, they really sound like new covenant promises, don't they? New Testament promises. So think of John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then, of course, the one that we hold to most often, I think. Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's just a dozen or so quick verses, passages of Scripture. The promise of God to dwell with his people is woven throughout the Scriptures. So what's the promise? What's the promise? I will dwell with my people as their God, he says. And what we see throughout the Old Testament and even through the Gospels and and Acts during the time of Christ and the the Apostles in, in particular is that God dwells with his people. First, he dwelled with them in the garden when he, when he walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And then in the tabernacle as they wandered through the wilderness and into the promised land. And then finally in the temple in Jerusalem. And when we come to the New Testament, John tells us, as I just read, and the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I will dwell with my people. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 16 through the end of the chapter, 16 to 23. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 23. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, for they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Lord, I pray that you would give us um, what we need today. Help us to understand these things. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Last week as we looked through the first part of this chapter, we saw that the church is both as Paul describes it, God's field being planted and watered by various field hands. And it's also God's building being, being built by skilled master builders who are essentially laying block after block of God's word on the foundation of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. 
This means that in order to build his church, Jesus uses means. He uses people. Sometimes this is those who scatter the seed. Sometimes it is those who water that seed. Sometimes these are the, 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 what Paul calls himself a master builder. And I want to emphasize that this is, this is parents. Parents are often the best waterers, right, of the seed of the gospel in the lives of their own children. It's grandparents. It's Sunday school teachers. It's elders and deacons and pastors and, and others in the church. Anyone who is involved in making disciples just as, as Christ has commanded. But regardless, as Paul is comparing himself and the other, essentially the other shepherds of the Corinthian church, he says that we are, we are God's fellow workers. In other words, we belong to God and we are simply fellow workers in his building project. Christ had said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And one day these servants, as he calls them, they will face judgment. Those who speak God's word, as Hebrews 13 says, will, will have to give an account of those words spoken. And the work that is spirit-filled is laid on the foundation of Christ and the apostles will survive the fires of judgment. But the worldly work will be burned away. Even while the believing teacher will be saved, he says, as only through fire. He'll smell like smoke. Most of his work will be a waste. And when it comes to verses 16 and 17 in particular, and I touched, just touched on this last week, we're really going to get into it this week, um, but Paul makes this connection that his skilled work as a master builder wasn't simply, he wasn't simply building a nice house. In fact, Paul pointed out from Exodus, I, I pointed out last week, Paul is using imagery from Exodus, that he's actually using the language of God's plan for the construction of the tabernacle, which was replaced eventually with God's blessing by the temple in Jerusalem. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And so now we see this, this stunning reality but also a dire warning in these first couple of verses. A stunning reality and a dire warning. Look again at verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Paul asks, he begins by asking this rhetorical question. Do you not know? And he's asking this in a way, he does this a few times in, uh, throughout this letter, he's, he's actually being critical of them because they clearly should have known this. Don't you know? Don't you know you are God's temple? Remember, many of these Corinthian Christians were claiming to be superior to others because they have a secret knowledge in their view. Others are relying on the wisdom of this world, and in their case, philosophical wisdom, Greek philosophy. But Paul is telling them that they're, they're missing the point of this foundational theology. You're missing the point. Don't you know? It's a stunning reality is what he is saying here. It's stunning for the Jews 
for whom there was only one temple in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. It's stunning for the Greeks who were surrounded by temples all over their cities, all over the city of Corinth, temples to their, to their many Greek gods. But Paul says, don't you know that you're God's temple? The temple is the place where God dwells with his people. It's the place where the Spirit of God takes up residence, so to speak. Later in chapter 6, he's going to use the same language to urge Christians to refrain from immorality because as he will say in chapter 6, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own for you were bought with a price so glorify God in your body. And in that case, he's speaking specifically about immorality. But here in chapter 3, He's using the same imagery to paint a a different picture, or maybe a, a broader picture. He's speaking corporately. The you here in these verses is is plural. It's it's if you're from south of here, it's y'all, right? Or all y'all. However that all I don't I'm I'm very Yankee, so I don't have a good grasp on southern dialect. But that's what he's talking about. Don't all y'all understand that all y'all are part of God's temple? Paul is talking about the community of believers who have gathered in Christ's name. Not specifically individuals here, but rather the assembly of the saints. This would have been stunning for these early Christians to be called God's temple, especially by the Apostle Paul, especially by this former Pharisee who knew all well, too well about the temple and about the law and about the rules, especially considering that they were most certainly, this group of Christians in Corinth, were most certainly gathered in someone's house for worship to hear this letter really read to them. And even if it were a large house, I'm guessing it was nowhere near as big as this room, but even if these Christians were gathered in a large house, they were probably cramped most Sundays. And whatever the house looked like, even if it was the house of a wealthy church member and was a large building, it looked nothing compared to the temple. Nothing compared to the grandeur and the splendor of God's temple in Jerusalem. But this image that Paul is bringing up here of the church, the people, the assembly of the saints being the temple of God, it points us back to the idea of the foolishness of God and the theme of unity that Paul has been writing about. See, it's it's foolish for man to not think of a building when we hear the word temple, right? Right? It would be foolish for the Greeks to not think of uh, the building that they probably could look out most any window and see a temple because there were so many. The same is actually true for us when we hear the word church, um, which literally means assembly. The church is the assembly of the saints. It's It's not the building in which we meet. I found this quote. Reserving church, the word church, to designate a covenanted ecclesiastical society 
New England Puritans used meeting house to denote the assembly place used for church gatherings, town meetings, and other public gatherings. And so the building, um, especially to the Puritans, especially in New England, the building is called the meeting house. And so this building that we are meeting in here this morning as Logansville Community Church is the meeting house. This is the Logansville Community Church meeting house, we could say. But beyond this sort of semantic distinctions, we need to understand their key, the key here, to their unity. What is the key to the unity of the people of God? It's, it's not the building, we know that. What is the key to the unity of the people of God? It's the indwelling spirit of God. This is the ultimate argument for church unity. Not that the people of the church at Corinth are, are, are just a collection of little temples. He's going to get into that later. But rather that all together they are one temple that belongs to God and in which his spirit dwells. And so the divisions, the factions, the disputes about leadership that they are facing in the city of Corinth and the church of Corinth are, are not just an unfortunate reality. They're actually a fundamental uh, misrepresentation. They, they, they represent a, a failure to understand the significance and the nature of the local church. And if that's not bad enough, that they don't even really understand the church, this factious spirit actually, it actually works against what they're doing in the church by dividing up by favorite teachers. It actually works against Christ's prayers for the church. Let me remind you of what is often called Jesus' high priestly prayer, John chapter 17. Let me just read a couple of verses of that. It's John 17, 20 to 23. Jesus is praying this. He says, I do not ask for these only, meaning those who are with him, the, the 12, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Actually, the 11, sorry. Judas is gone by then but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, so that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that we may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. The unity of the church that Christ is praying for. The church at Corinth is actually working against that. Jesus' prayer is reflected in Paul's rebuke here and, and, and his instructions, and especially in this part of chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. And as a result of the the jealousy and the strife and the quarreling that the church is facing. Paul also issues a strong warning. He says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Notice that he does not say, as we, I'm kind of relying on your memory from last week, we talked about teachers and the judgment of teachers. I want you to notice that he does not say if any teacher or preacher destroys God's temple. He says, if anyone destroys God's temple. And I want to make two observations here. First, this statement, I think, is in contrast with verse 15. In verse 15, the teacher is obviously a believer 
who nevertheless uses unbiblical means in an attempt to build on the foundation of Christ. Uh, Let me read that again. Verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This is uh, a, a believer who is hung up in the world's methods of building the church. These are the the so-called, maybe the nowadays we would think of them as the church growth experts. Um, And we could put all kinds of people in this category. Those who are using uh, worldly wisdom in order to build a crowd of people and call it the church. Here though, in verse... um, 16 and 17, really the beginning of verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. The destroyer there of the church faces destruction. So in verse 15, he actually survives. He's saved, as even though through fire. In verse 17, the destroyer of the church faces destruction. Now later in some of his other writings, Paul will address those who bring destruction to God's temple both in the false teacher crowd, he's going to address that. Um, He will address those who are divisive, those who have other selfish motives, but here, this is where he leaves it. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. And the second observation that I want to point out is that he has not said what it is will destroy the temple of God here. Later, he's going to set up a distinction, for example, between leaven or or sin and holiness. Think of chapter 5 or chapter 6, particularly chapter 5. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, Paul will say. We'll we'll talk about that when we get there. It's going to cause great trouble for many churches when immorality or other divisive um, sin creeps into the churches. But for now, he must be, he must be pointing out the divisions, disputes, and factions that have been causing so much damage to the Corinthians that he's been talking about through these first three chapters. But I would remind you that there are many things that can destroy a church. Some of you have seen and witnessed those things. There are many things that can destroy a church. But the key to persevering or protecting, preserving the church, protecting the church. The key is holiness, which is only possible with repentance. The key is holiness, which is only possible with repentance. And so we could actually say repentance is key here. Look at verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. For anyone, uh, uh, if anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Now, Paul is referring to and and wrapping up this theme of worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom as he concludes this section of his letter. He's going to sort of start to change um, tactics or tracks here in chapter 4. But we must all, as we think about this, we must all guard against fooling ourselves by falling back into worldly wisdom. In fact, Paul is telling the church to repent of their worldly ways of thinking. He says, if anyone among you, not those from the outside, but but those in the church who consider themselves as wise because of the teachers they've aligned themselves with, because because of the wisdom of this world that they bring to the table, so to speak, even though those teachers are faithful, I want to point out, Remember, the teachers that he has specifically named are himself, 
Cephas, who is the apostle Peter, Apollos, who by all accounts was a godly man, and even Jesus himself. Even though the teachers are faithful, those who consider themselves wise because, simply because they're aligning with a certain teacher must repent. Those among the church who have, not yet to, who have yet to reckon with God must repent of our worldly wisdom and be willing to become fools in the eyes of the world. Be filled with the wisdom. Be filled with the Spirit of God. See, repentance is key here through this. We must turn and go the other way. And to support this call to repentance in verse 18, he cites two passages of Scripture. Let me read verses 19 and 20. He's, he's referring to two different verses here. In verse 19, we read, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the second verse he quotes, verse 20, The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. The first verse is interesting because it's actually from Job chapter 5, verse 13, which pictures a, a hunter stalking his prey and capturing it. He's clearly painting an image of God capturing the wise, worldly wise, that is. Or even the crafty. He's capturing the crafty in their own craftiness, we could say. The crafty, his point is, the crafty cannot crafty their way into eternal life. The, wise of, the wisdom of this world will not lead us to eternal life. We can't think or reason our way into eternal life. We need Christ. But the irony is, in quoting that verse um, from the book of Job, is that it was spoken by Job's friend Eliphaz, whose wise counseling of Job was ultimately discredited by God, proving his own point. Eliphaz proves his own point, and Paul uses that here. But the second quote is from Psalm 94, verse 11, which essentially says that human thoughts are not hidden from God. Human thought, look at verse 20 again. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Human thoughts are not hidden from God. And so we could say that if Paul had said back in, back in chapter 1, verse 18, that God looks foolish to the world... If God looks foolish to the world, if his plan of salvation looks foolish to the world, then what he's doing here is turning the tables and saying, well, the ways of this world certainly look foolish to God. So who are you going to believe? See, we are often impressed by the way the world divides under certain leaders. Political leaders, we can see divisions everywhere we look when we think about politics. Philosophical leaders, celebrity leaders of some sort or another, or even these days, medical or scientific leaders. But that's not the way the church should operate, Paul is saying. We cannot use the standards of this age to evaluate the way the church is organized or led. The Lord is not fooled by our foolish factions and divisions, which only does damage to the church. And so boasting in our brilliant teachers, even if they're men like Apollos or, or, or Cephas, Peter himself, or, or how, whoever, we must look to the Lord. We cannot boast in our, in our brilliant teachers. We boast only in him. Look at verse 21. 
So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Paul is saying this in kind of a funny way, um, but the question he's really asking is this. Why limit ourselves in boasting in someone like Peter or Paul when in Christ all things are ours? Why would we boast? Why would we limit ourselves by boasting in Paul? He's already said, were any of you baptized into my name? He said that back in the first chapter. Consider the famous passage from Romans chapter 8. I think this will help us to understand what he's saying here. In Romans 8, verses 31 to 39, he says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This means that we can say that Apollos and Paul and Cephas are ours that the legacy that they have left us through the planting and watering and building of God's temple, and and in a couple of cases at least, Paul and Cephas giving us God's word, writing the Spirit-inspired scriptures, we can say that the legacy that they have left us of building God's temple is glorifying him and it's strengthening us. Because as heirs of all of the promises and blessings which God has so richly provided us in Jesus Christ, we are Christ's. And we can boast in Him. We can boast in Him. And since it is true that we are Christ's, then we belong to God. And therefore, we have no basis for dividing into, into factions around certain people. The church belongs to Christ, the only begotten of God, and so let us then boast in him. So what does this mean for us? How do we avoid repeating the errors of the Corinthians? Let me give you three ways. The first is this. We need to remember that Paul is not talking about false unity. He's not talking about unity simply for the sake of unity. Unity is not more important than doctrinal purity or personal or corporate holiness. That's clear throughout this letter and throughout the scriptures. Okay? Galatians will tell us that Paul opposed Peter to his face because Peter was acting hypocritically. Paul will name in one of his letters Alexander the coppersmith who did him much harm. He will go after false teachers. He will confront immorality in the church. 
Church unity does not outweigh doctrinal purity or personal or corporate church holiness. Second, we also must not divide over secondary or lesser issues, doctrinal issues that are hard to interpret. For example, do you realize that when it comes to the end times, when it comes to eschatology, there are people here in this room who believe different things. And then there are, I'm, I'm sure, many others who don't really have a good grasp on what we believe about Christ's return. We just believe he's returning. There are other issues as well. Those are probably, I've hit alcohol and the second coming of Christ, so hit them all today. Let me just say that I am grateful for the unity of Logansville Community Church. You've displayed a unity in these past several years, even though you probably don't agree on all of these things. But you love each other, and you want to honor Christ. And I want to encourage you to not take your eyes off of that. When we joined Fire Fellowship last year, the Fellowship of Independent Reformed Evangelicals, um, we joined a fellowship of churches whose motto is this. This is the motto. You've probably heard it before. It's, I don't even think it's original to them. In the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. We will love one another and not divide over those non-essential things. And just so you know, those essentials, the essentials that we believe are essential, are laid out in our book of faith and order, our doctrinal statement. And then lastly, when Paul says that the church is the temple of God, it's really hard for us to, for us to grasp the, the shock waves that would have been sent throughout both Judaism and Greek paganism. In fact, when Jesus said in John chapter 2, verse 19, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, and he was talking about himself. He was talking about how he was going to be put to death and then raised again. But nevertheless, his words were twisted and used against him at his trial. Matthew 26 tells us the story. They claimed that he was threatening God's temple. But Ezekiel writes of a curious vision that he has in the book of Ezekiel chapter 10. It really kind of stretches through chapters 10 and 11 and maybe even beyond that. But I want to read just a couple of verses from this chapter. Now, it's a vision from the book of Ezekiel, and if you've not spent much time in Ezekiel, imagine if the book of Revelation was in the Old Testament. It's kind of like that. But the book of Ezekiel, this is from chapter 10. He says this, Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire, an appearance like a throne. And he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim. Fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he, and he went in before my eyes. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house. When the man went in and a cloud filled the inner court, and the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. 
The sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. This house is the house of God. This house is the temple of God. And this vision is the beginnings of a, it's a prophetic picture of the glory of God, the Spirit of God leaving the temple. And so a little bit later in the same chapter, Ezekiel 10, we read this. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth from before my eyes as they went out and the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. This is an image of the word Ichabod. You've probably heard that used as a name before. Um, it literally means the glory has departed. It means the glory has departed. Because of their sin, God would leave his people and would no longer dwell among them. But then we read in Acts chapter 2. Listen to verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is the Spirit of God returning to his people as he promised. Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension led directly to the Holy Spirit being poured out on his saints. When he dies on the cross for our sins, rose for our justification, ascended to the Father's right hand in glory, and baptizes us with the Holy Spirit, then the purpose of the temple can be seen. The Jerusalem temple was designed to point us to our prophet, priest, and king. This means that the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, as Jesus says in John chapter 4, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. We are God's temple, Paul tells us because we are Christ's, because his spirit dwells within us. And so, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I dwell in your midst, declares the Lord, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. You are God's temple because God has graciously and richly poured out his spirit on you, on us, on this assembly of saints that we might sing and rejoice because all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Pray with me. Father, some of these things are hard to get our minds around. When we think of a temple, when we think of the church, we, we think of the building. We are so limited, Lord. But when we gather together in your name, 
when we come together to sing and praise you, we are reminded that you are with us. Yes, we believe that Christ's promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you, is a promise for individuals as well, that we are not left alone when we leave this meeting house. But when we come together, Lord, we come together in your name and your spirit is with us. Your spirit helps us to understand the things of your word. That we sing as one voice praises to your name. That we pray as one voice seeking for your help. That we worship you as one people of God. And so Lord, as we come to the table, we come and eat and drink to proclaim his death until he comes. We do this together in communion because you have called us together, Lord. Father, we pray that your name would be praised today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.